So uh, what do you want to be remembered for? You know, if you were going to write your obituary, if you had an obituary, what would you want to find in it? If 2018 was going to be your, your last year? Uh, some, of course, have gone for humour. Spike Milligan famously wrote in Gaelic on his grave. You know what he said? I told you I was sick. Or I quite like the one from an American cemetery in Pennsylvania after a, an accident with a motor car. Beneath this stone lies a merry lass who aimed for the brake and hit the gas. Some are somewhat optimistic. Frank Sinatra, do you know what's on his grave? The best are yet to come. But uh, some just reflect on people's life achievements. So uh, I wonder, uh, Mel Blanc, who is the voice of Bugs Bunny, Daffy Duck, Porky Pig and others, you know what's going to say on his grave? Do you know what it says on his grave? Anyone like to guess? That's all, folks. You remember that at the end of the cartoons? That's all, folks. How would you like to be remembered? I guess uh, most of us would like to leave behind a, a good reputation, a godly saint, a stalwart of the church family at Chessington Evangelical Church, a great servant of the Lord Jesus, gifted in many ways. A few of us would want our obituaries to be totally honest, would we? A loving husband, mostly, who occasionally lost his temper with his wife, who once broke a bit of crockery by throwing it on the floor in a fit of anger. A Bible teacher who generally prepared pretty well, but rarely soaked his sermons in enough prayer. A father who loved his children, but was often more self-centered than self-sacrificial in the way he spent his time with them. There's a, there's a trend now in writing your own obituary. Funnily enough, Bernard Manning, the comedian, wrote his, which he published in the Daily Mail after his death. Uh, Tony Blair, apparently he's quite keen on writing his own obituary, risks the danger of someone dragging up the past. You can filter the information. You can ensure that you come out well. Now, in 2 Corinthians, we've been seeing there are false teachers in Corinth, and they would have loved to write their own obituaries. They like nothing better than bigging themselves up, improving their image and reputation. They love to be known as super spiritual. We, we saw last week that Paul gives them the name hyper-apostles. They thought they were hyper-orators. And as a result, they quite liked hyper-salaries from the churches they were serving. But there is a more sinister thing that is happening as these men exercise their egos, and it comes at the start of our passage today. We're looking at boasting today, and the first thing we're going to see is the danger of boasting, and it's this enslavement. You probably remember if you've been here in 2 Corinthians that Paul's writing a letter to defend his ministry. That's not to protect his ego. No, Paul recognizes because he took the message of Jesus to these people. If he can be slagged off, the danger is they will give up on the true message that he has taken to them. If they abandon him, they'll abandon the gospel. So he goes at length to protect this church from these false teachers. Look what he says in verse 16. I repeat... Let no one take me for a fool, but if you do, then tolerate me just as you would a fool, so that I may do a little boasting. And Paul's tone has turned to sarcasm. I'm not an idiot, but if you think I am, let me speak as an idiot to you. Uh, let me do a bit of boasting. I mean, since everyone else is doing boasting, that's what I'll do as well. V verse 19, you gladly put up with fools, since you are so wise. Uh, boasting's what you like. So boasting's what you're going to get. I mean, you're so wise, you've been taken in by the, the boasting of these super apostles. And look at the way they treat you. Do you see how they treat them? Verse 20. In fact, 
You even put up with anyone who enslaves you or exploits you or takes advantage of you or puts on airs or slaps you in the face. Gene Scott was the leader of his own self-styled church in America. On February the 26th, 2005, he died. This is what his obituary said about Gene Scott. Scott's followers were assured that they did not have to go to church on Sunday and that such foibles as homosexuality, adultery, abortion, profanity, and drinking were just fine. To qualify as a member of the church, the main requirement was to have a valid credit card. Scott's aim, apparently, was to make it richer than the Vatican. A skinflit may get to heaven, he admitted, but what awaits him are a rusty old halo, a skinny old cloud, and a robe so worn it scratches. First-class salvation costs money. Anyone requiring salvation had to hand over at least 10% of their income to Scott, and that was the bare minimum. He once excommunicated the entire congregation for not giving enough. I'm not sure whether Graham and Barry have thought about that as an idea yet. Now, Gene Scott is a very extreme example. It's easy, isn't it, to spot his self-centeredness. But there's actually a warning for us here. Gene Scott had thousands of followers. Makes no sense, does it? But, but we need to remember how gullible we are. How readily we're taken in by people who blow their own trumpet. How in a world of image we love the person who seems to have a great image. You know that sort of person, the person who always uses themselves as the, the example of best practice? Oh, well, when I was in business, I resolved an issue like this by... Oh, when I was an elder of another church, I ensured that that didn't happen because, you know, that sort of person, they've never made the mistakes you're making, and they've always managed in the past to solve the problems you're facing. It's, it's quite a good question to ask about someone. Who told me about this person's achievements? Was it them? Well, that may be a problem. Because in the end, we tell people how great we are so we can exercise power over them. You've got to be aware of the self-advertised man or woman. Did you see what's happening in Corinth? That the power they're exercising, they enslave you. They exploit you. They take advantage of you. They put on airs one moment and they slap you in the face the next. You see, in Corinth... You bigged yourself up so you could put others down. You, you make them feel little. You enslave them to your decisions, your desires. Well, well, do you know, I have so much experience here. I think we really should do it my way. And we need to be very careful of that. Because in the end, the church is littered in history with men especially who have exploited the weak and the vulnerable and use their positions to get their way. Look at Paul's little cheeky comment in verse 21. To my shame, I admit that we were too weak for that. I mean, I know, says Paul, how much you like to be abused, but I'm afraid I just wasn't strong enough to pull it off. And then he goes on to do some boasting of his own. Verse 21, whatever anyone else dares to boast about, I'm speaking as a fool, I also dare to boast about. But the direction of Paul's boasting is not to big himself up. No, it is to belittle himself. So here's the, the second thing. If the, the first thing is the danger of boasting. It leads to people being enslaved. The direction of boasting is weakness. There are three areas the Apostle Paul could boast about. The first is his ancestry, verse 22. Are they Hebrews? 
So am I. Are they Israelites? So am I. Are they Abraham's descendants? So am I. It's possible these new teachers in Corinth were bragging about their Jewish heritage. Well, I'm just as kosher as anyone, says Paul. But at the same time, he recognized it's madness to place value on that. Do you see that in verse 23? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. In fact, back in Philippians chapter 3, Paul says he counts his religious Jewishness, his, his achievements within Pharisaism as rubbish, dung, garbage, compared to the surpassing glory of knowing Christ Jesus. He, he might have had an incredibly impressive background, but that was nothing to boast about. All that mattered was that he knew Jesus now. Oh, there's nothing is in Paul's past, his, his ancestry that he can boast about. As someone has said, even to me this week, God has no grandchildren. And nor is he going to boast about his life's work. Look at verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I'm out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been imprisoned more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Now, now what follows might seem just like the sort of heroic epic that the Greeks of Corinth would have admired, a sort of Christian version of the labors of Hercules. As Paul goes about, a list of victories in the face of brutal punishment and suffering. The problem is that, that Paul leaves all the victories out. Look at verse 24. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a day, a night and a day in the open sea. I've been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my fellow Jews, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and often gone without sleep. I've known hunger and thirst and often gone without food. I've been cold and naked. Do you know what he doesn't mention? Doesn't mention any new converts. Doesn't mention any churches he's planted. Doesn't point out the effect that he's had on many lives or his movement within influential circles of the early church. He doesn't say, do you know I'm buddies with Pete? You know, Pete, Apostle Pete, Gates of Heaven Pete. You know, he's my mate. He doesn't say he's a major player at the Council of Jerusalem. You know, we did some pretty important thinking there. No, he says, all he says is, look, I got beat up a lot. I was hungry a lot. Actually, I even worried a lot. Do you see that in verse 28? Besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. He doesn't even speak about how he remained godly despite the pressure. Instead, he tells them he constantly battled with weakness and sin. Verse 29, who is weak? And I do not feel weak. Who is led into sin? And I do not inwardly burn. You see, if if you're in danger of reading this as a list of things to admire, well, verse 29 leaves you realizing that the Apostle Paul himself says to you tonight, I'm just a sinner who struggles like everyone else. I'm no super spiritual sinless warrior. I've struggled with temptation like the rest of you. Verse 30, if I must boast, I will boast of the things that show my weakness. Just look, just look at the the crazy, messy, terrible life I've had, said Paul. 
I mean, actually, I even ran away when I was first threatened because of my preaching. He he does that in verse 31 and 32. I I wasn't some sort of hero scaling the walls to tell them about Jesus. No, actually, what happened is I was carrying in a basket being lowered out of the window so I could get away. Sometimes people ask me why I stopped being a, a geography teacher and became a pastor. And under God, one reason was Pete Smith. Uh, Pete Smith was a a chaplain at the school I was teaching at in Australia. And Pete was the first person I met in ministry who, who I guess, had the same struggles as I did. He he was battling against sin. He he was fighting to try and and pray more. He, He came across as just a normal bloke, saved solely because there was a God who loved him and sent his son to die for him. Now, I guess when I was a young Christian before that, when people who taught the Bible, people in ministry, said, oh, yes, I struggle with sin, I sort of thought, nah, no, you don't. <laughs> Not like I do. But, but Pete showed me that actually you don't have to be perfect to be a pastor. I could have read the Apostle Paul, because that's what Paul says. <laughs> I was far from perfect, either in experience or in the attitudes of my heart. You see, if you want to talk about yourself, Talk about your weakness. Talk about the battles you've had, the hardships you've faced. Uh, not, with, not with false humility, because we're great at false humility, aren't we? It's that way that we, we talk about our weakness, but actually what we're wanting someone to do is correct us and tell us we're actually strong. I had a great uh, ministry trainee when I was uh, in Exeter um, who was brilliant at showing up my false humility. I'd turn up after preaching what I thought was a cracking sermon and uh, at the staff meeting saying, oh, Oh, that was, that was just no good. It was terrible. Um, fishing for the compliment. And uh, she'd just say, no, yeah, you're right, Daph. That was absolutely rubbish. It's worth someone overheard. Bang. End of conversation. She shouldn't shut me up. We're to be those who are honest about what we feel are our weaknesses. Not because we want someone to tell us we're strong, but because we're honest about ourselves. Uh, the Writer Paul David Tripp says in his book Dangerous Calling, which is about being a pastor, he says that we're not to be pictures of Jesus, but we're to be windows through which people see Jesus. And if you're someone who is serving in any area of the life of our church, whether that's as a life group leader or in in teaching the children or drawing even alongside other Christians to encourage them, it's really important that what they see in you is someone who needs Jesus that through you they look to him, that they don't want to be you. (laughs) Oh, no. Can I tell you now, you don't want to be me. They don't want to be you, but they do want to know him. You see, in the end, you can be a founding member of CEC. You can have built the King Center with your own bare hands. You can have led JF for the last 25 years. And actually, all that really matters is do you see your weakness and you depend on Jesus? Because Paul even doesn't boast about the spiritual blessings he's had. Look at chapter 12 and verse 1. This is the third area he he might boast in. Oh, I must go on boasting. Although there is nothing to be gained, I will go on to visions and revelations from the Lord. Now, Paul begins to speak in the third person here. But I think from verse 7, it's pretty clear he's speaking about himself. Perhaps even as he speaks in the third person, he's trying to distance himself from this event. Because his aim, again, is to show he is not special, despite this amazing experience. Verse 2, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven. 
whether he's in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. He goes on, verse 4, was caught up to paradise and heard inexpressible things, things that no one is permitted to tell. This was a a spiritual experience second to none. But he says in verse 5, I will boast about a man like that, but I will not boast about myself except about my weakness. Oh, that might have been an extraordinary experience, but it was nothing to do with me personally. No, I'm just a weak man. Do you actually see in verse 4 how personal these experiences to Paul are? They're things that no one is permitted to tell. They're for him alone. They're not for him to, to brag about. They're not some sort of divine blessing that, that he's actually even to share with others. It's one of the things we need to remember that your spiritual experiences are your spiritual experiences and my spiritual experiences are, are my spiritual experiences. We can be encouraged by the testimony of what God has done in someone else's life. But if we crave similar events rather than craving Jesus, if we feel inadequate because we haven't had the same vision or experience, well, then actually we're losing sight of the fact that we all just simply are weak people who need Jesus. See, Paul knew he'd been greatly blessed, but it was just between him and the Lord. In fact, the Lord ensured he didn't get a a big head because he helped him to see the last thing, the delight of weakness, grace. You see, the danger of weakness, the danger of boasting is it'll enslave people to leaders. The the, the direction of boasting, if you're going to boast about anything, says Paul, let's boast about how weak we are. That's so contrary to our culture, isn't it? Our culture says you must think well of you. So so often as Christians, we actually don't help one another, but because what we do is we say, there, there, no, no, you're not really a bad person. Can I tell you now that everyone in this room is a far worse person than you think they are? If you say to someone, oh, you're not really that bad, you are lying. You just don't know them. Really? I promise you, that is absolutely true. Unless someone is actually telling you every secret of their heart that they poured out over the entirety of their life and the true depth of their depravity, yeah, which is going to take a mighty long time, and you'll probably have got bored by the end of it. Unless they've informed you about the real depth of their sinfulness, they are far worse than you think they are. So don't tell them they're not. Just say, yep, you are, but praise God for Jesus. Because here's the delight of weakness. It is grace. The delight of weakness is grace. Look at verse 7 with me. Therefore, in order to keep me from becoming conceited, I was given a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. See what the Lord's done? He's humbled Paul. There's lots of discussion about what this thorn could be. Physical illness, particular sin. Actually, in one way, it doesn't really matter. If it really mattered... Paul would have told us what it was. But more importantly is the effect of this thorn. Because it clearly changed Paul's life. He he knows it's God-given, yet he calls this problem a messenger of Satan. You see, Paul recognized that evil doesn't come directly from God, but God has used Satan to burden him. And Paul's clearly desperate to be rid of this battle. Verse 8 Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But but even apostles don't always get what they ask for. They always get what's best for them. Wasn't that what Johnny said about her prayer? No, she prayed to be drawn closer to the Lord. 
She didn't get the answer she was hoping for, but she got what was best for her. And that's what Paul has got. And the Lord uses Satan to teach Paul a vital lesson. Here's the lesson, verse 9. This is the lesson that you and I need to daily learn to the day we stand face to face with Jesus. He said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace, says the Lord God, is sufficient for you. It's enough. You don't need anything else. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, says Paul, so that Christ's power may rest on me. See, the super apostles, they boast about their strength. And that's all they've got. Their strength. But Paul... He's come to see that he is weak. And so he will boast about his weakness. And the result is, he has God's strength through the Lord Jesus Christ. He, Paul, comes to see Jesus as the one he needs. He comes to see that it's grace, God's undeserved loving kindness, lavished on him in the Lord Jesus, poured out and demonstrated at the cross of Christ, where God himself became weak for us, to bear our sin, that we might know that we are loved by him now and forever, and restored to relationship with him, and that we might be made those who can receive his Holy Spirit to strengthen us. The Lord Jesus Christ, the source of all true strength. And for Paul to realize that, he had to suffer affliction throughout his entire life. Now, now hard as this is for us to understand, and this is even harder for us to accept, it's not best for us that every illness is healed. We live in a culture that presumes that we will be healthy, and when we're slightly unhealthy, we'll go to the doctor and he'll make us better. That's what we mentally assume all the time. But it is not best for us that every illness is healed. Every battle is won. You see, more important than physical well-being is spiritual dependence. It's why what we should pray for brothers and sisters who are ill, more than their physical healing, is that they will trust the Lord and know the sweetness of his grace in the midst of their illness. You see, a daily trust in the grace of God rather than in the greatness of our character, it is what we need more than anything else. That's what we need to get us through the Christian life. Because the purpose of our lives is not our comfort or our glory, but it is Jesus's glory. Look at verse 10 of chapter 12. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weakness, in insults, in hardships, in persecution, in difficulties, For when I am weak, then I am strong. You see, Paul loves weakness because it makes Jesus look better. Now, what did you make of Johnny's testimony? I want to disagree slightly with our dear brother, Jason. She is not a remarkable woman, but she has a remarkable God. Yeah? See, God's plans for her 
were for a deeper healing than the healing of her body, the healing of her precious soul. And each morning, what did she pray? Jesus, I can't do this thing called life. And that when did she experience heaven? When were splashes of heaven in her life? When she found Jesus in the midst of the splashes of hell. In other words, in the depth of her suffering, she found the love of Jesus Christ to be sustaining. Now let me ask you, is that what you want? See, what Johnny prayed was to know Christ better, and what the Lord did was to give her an accident such that it transformed her from a self-centered teenager to a Christ-centered servant. And when Paul talks about his weakness here, It is his weakness in serving the Lord Jesus. When he talks, hears from the Lord that my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness, that is grace to serve the Lord Jesus. You will have all the strength you need from God to live for Christ. Grace is given us so that we can live the lives, not the lives we want, but the lives Jesus wants. Grace is not God's gift to you so that you can live the life you think you want. It's God's gift to you so that you're transformed into someone who lives the life that Christ wants for you. And that is the best life. You see, the super apostles were all about what others thought of them. And it's so easy for us, isn't it, to spend our lives thinking about what others think of us, whether physically, do they think we're beautiful? Whether emotionally, do they think we're lovable? Whether in terms of status, do they see us as as admirable? There are so many areas of lives we want to appear strong. I guess lots of us come out this evening, checked our appearance, we've thought, do I look good? We've had a conversation with someone, maybe since we arrived, do I feel good? Maybe we've even taken the opportunity to remind someone of some area of success in our life. Maybe we've talked about some some blessing that the Lord's given us in in work or, or in our family. How many of us have said anything about our weakness? Or even said anything about how precious and good our Savior, the Lord Jesus, is? You see, the list is endless of the things we use to big ourselves up, to make ourselves feel good, to compare ourselves with those who don't have the people who don't have a job or don't have a wife or don't have as many friends or don't have just what we have. But in the end, says Paul, we are all weak. And it's in that weakness that we find God's strength. It's in seeing how wretched we are that we see how precious God's grace is. It's in recognizing how we struggle to stand for Jesus that we find the strength to stand for Jesus. It's in looking pathetic in the world's eyes that we will be those who are transformed in people who are able to make a real difference in the world for Christ. It is in weeping in our helplessness that we will find the love of the one who gives us the strength to help others. See, weakness does not cripple us. It makes us those who are useful in the hands of our God. We don't need to try and hide our inaccuracies, pretend we're strong. We need to take our weakness and delight in it. 
that God has lavished his love on sinful, suffering, weak people to show his power to the world, to show his glory that he would use people like us. I uh, write my prayers in a prayer journal. Now, the reason I write my prayers is not that I'm super godly or I'm saving them for posterity so that you can all read them after my death and see what an excellent prayer I was. I throw the prayer journal out as soon as I get to the end. The reason that I write my prayers in the prayer journal is that I can't concentrate unless I'm writing. Um, I don't know about you, but I find praying really hard work. But I find if I'm actually moving a pen across a page, I actually manage to keep concentrating during the prayer. And on uh, June the 26th, I prayed a very stupid thing. Here we go. Father in heaven, thank you that you've created me and redeemed me to be who I am. Please help me not to think of myself more highly than I ought, but to realize you have given me all things and all is to be used for your sake, for your glory. Here was the stupid thing. Please humble me before your throne of grace. Make me prayerful constantly calling on you for the people you've given me to love. And then last Sunday morning, I found myself with an outburst of anger towards a member of my family, of deep rage, so that if you'd been within 100 yards of my back garden, you'd have realized the pastor of Chessington Evangelical Church is saved by grace alone. And then deeply convicted. Deeply convicted. Because actually there was just enough truth in what this person had said, to point out that so much of my life is all about me, not him. All about my comfort, not his glory. Uh, One of the things that I came to realize under the Lord's conviction then was one of the reasons I found it hard to settle here, and I feel at home here, is that you need me less than the guys in Preston did. Because you're an already established church. You have lots of friends. Most of your family and relations are here. And I like to feel needed. I like it when people come to me with their problems. When they need my help. Because that makes me feel good about myself. I, I need to confess before you that part of my failure to love you appropriately is actually... I'm craving you to need me sometimes more than I'm craving you to need Christ. And that's a desperately wrong thing. So on Monday, I prayed this. Father in heaven, thank you for this new day of your grace. Please forgive me for the sins of yesterday, for my anger and filthy language, for my self-righteousness and self-pity my trying to use food to make myself happy and my mental justification of doing so for my lack of love. Father, these are just the sins I can recall, let alone the ones I can't. I'm not worthy to be called your son. Thank you for forgiveness that is mine in the Lord Jesus. Thank you that you've clothed me in his righteousness, granted me his spirit, given me his status and his inheritance. Thank you that you've worked all this in Christ Please help me to put to death the deeds of the flesh and clothe myself with the character of Christ. So what do you want in your obituary? I think probably I should long for mine to read. Father and husband, wretched sinner by nature. 
often failed, suffered with a relatively constant battle against anger and a desire to be comfortable and a slightly hidden battle against pride, but who was enabled in his weakness solely by the grace of God to serve the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord says to you tonight, my grace is sufficient for you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that enough to be honest to yourself about yourself? My grace, the gift of my son, the love I've lavished on you and him, it is sufficient for you. For my power is made perfect in weakness. Will you boast with the Apostle Paul in your weakness tonight? Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we, we are indeed a weak people. confess to you our wrong desires, our wrong dreams, and our wrong self-dependence. I want to confess to you our sinful actions, our sinful thoughts, our sinful deeds. And yet, Father in heaven, you knew all this when you chose us in Christ before the creation of the world. We have done nothing to surprise you. And yet when we were dead in our sins and transgressions, you made us alive in Christ. For it is by grace that we've been saved. Through faith. And therefore, our Father, please help us to be those who are honest with ourselves and with one another and point each other to Christ, to him. Guard us from, from seeking to, to big each other up. But please, oh please, would we live lives that big Jesus up. Not just within the church, but within our world that desperately needs to see and admit its weakness and desperately needs to see and cling to its Savior. For Jesus' name's sake, amen.